Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bobby Moore and Sir Jeff Hurst. The trailer booking at Billy Bones. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. This is more than just a podcast. Uh, podcast? Uh, this is a bonus episode. We talked about this on Tuesday. Our good friend and occasional guest presenter, Ian Dale, uh, does a, a book club podcast. This week, he spoke to Tony Carr, uh, former Academy Director of West Ham, and he generously sent us a copy to play as an extra episode on this podcast. So um, take it away, Ian. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I don't normally do football books on this podcast, although I do read an awful lot of them. My, my main reading is political biographies and diaries and football biographies and diaries. So when I saw that Tony Carr was publishing a book, um, I thought I've got to get him on because Tony, for those of you who are in the world of football, you will know of Tony Carr because he's been at West Ham for about 40 years in all sorts of different capacities and he's kind of lived the life of the club through the last 40 years and as most of you will know if you listen to my radio show I am a devout West Ham supporter so I thought what a great opportunity to get him in to talk about his book it's called A Lifetime in Football at West Ham United. Tony welcome. Um, when I was in publishing I wanted to publish this book but we never, we never quite made it work but I'm absolutely delighted that you have put your story down on paper because it's very rare that people nowadays in the world of football spend so much time at a particular club and you started off um, as, as a player but didn't quite because of injury didn't quite make it into the first team but you've had a wonderful career coaching some of the best known players in English football um, and you've now put it down on paper why, why did you decide that you needed to write the book? Yes well in effect, I've had a conversation with you in initially <laughs> planted to see, you know, and um, I thought it was an appropriate time uh, to look back, uh, you know, and, and write down, memorise, remember, etc. You know, all the stages of my career in that respect. And um, as you can see in the book, I start at the end where, you know, it ended a little bit, mm. you know. Not very nice at that particular... But I'm over that now. That isn't a problem. So then I went... Obviously, I thought, well, let's start at the beginning, where I grew up, where I started to play football, 
and how I developed into the the coach that I became in the end. And as you say, uh, 43 years unbroken service for the Hammers. So, you know, a lot of players have come through my... uh, well, they certainly have, and we'll come on to the end at the end. Yes, okay. Um, I mean, I wondered because, in a in a sense, it it, it was a, a a sad ending the way the club treated you right at at, at the end, um, and to stay with one club as a coach for that long is unheard of. And certainly, yes. in, in the modern day, isn't it? Because Absolutely. managers change a lot more frequently, and they tend to bring in their own people. Mm. But you did last the course through quite a few managers. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I suppose you might you could say I was lucky uh, in that respect. You know, I, I think um, in terms of my, I, I felt the most vulnerable when John Lyle was sacked. Yeah, and this is uh, in nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, nineteen eighty nine ninety, and Lou Macari came in, and you know we all thought it was Ron Boyce and Mick McGiven at the time as the coaches, and Billy Bonds at that time had the had the youth team because uh, I'd moved up to the reserves at that point. And um, I think we all felt vulnerable at that point that uh, Lou would bring his own men in and, you know, we'd be looking for new 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 appointments. But it didn't happen. Lou was very good, to be fair, a really good man, uh, stayed loyal with everybody, let us get on with it. And certainly uh, with my remit and with the sort of younger players, was left to my you know my own devices in effect you know mm. carry on with what you're already doing so that was where I've probably felt the most vulnerable but every change of manager you often wonder you just don't know but I was lucky enough to survive you know and I've, yeah. well let's talk about the different managers because um, when when you joined the club as a teenager um, Ron Greenwood was the manager, the manager yeah. I mean I, I suspect I mean John Lyle and Ron Greenwood I don't think West Ham fans like to compare them really because they, they were almost sort of symbiotic they, they, yeah. they, John Lyle was um, the assistant manager under Ron Greenwood what did you learn from Ron Greenwood and was it him that encouraged you to go into coaching no, it was John, really, that encouraged me to go into coaching because Ron was the manager when I first joined as a you know a 15-year-old yeah. apprentice. But John was my youth team coach at that point. So it was John and Ron. Everything about them was about the technical side of the game, how to stand, you know, you know get, get a picture. Get a picture was, was Ron's... You know, mantra on the training ground. And when I first heard that, I didn't know what he was talking about. Well, get a picture. What's he on about? But obviously, you certainly realise that you know before the ball arrives with you, mm. get a picture of what's on and around you, so you can make a quick decision of where to play the next pass. So um, you start to learn those little anecdotes and those little things, and stand on the half turn, play the way you're facing. All these little little things that stick with you. And um, it was it was wrong, and then. John was basically Ron's disciple in that respect. And then John became the assistant manager when Ron uh, moved upstairs and then eventually moved into the England job in the late 70s. 77, I think. Yeah, after yeah. Revy uh, had yeah. gone to the United Arab Emirates. But um, certainly it was it was John that then encouraged us to take up coaching. Uh, we used to go in the schools in the afternoon when we were young professionals and you know, instead of whiling away the time in a snooker hall, go and visit a local school and go on the pitches for an hour with the school teachers and teach some football, mm. which is what we a lot of us did. And I always used to go with Peter Bra- uh, Peter Grotier, the goalkeeper. Not Peter Braybrook, that was later on. And um, that sort of got me into coaching. And I, and I found even at that early age, when I was an aspiring young player, that I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that 
you know, imparting that information that I was being taught every day, you know, although in a basic form because of you know, the mixed levels of children yeah. you, you're coaching. But no, that's what started me off, really. And then when, when West Ham decided that I wasn't going to be good enough and released me, it was John that pulled me to one side and said, what? Because I'd already got my basic coaching how, award. How old were you at that point? I was 18 when I got my first coaching award. And I was um, 19 when they released me. And John said, well, why don't you go and do your advanced licence? Uh, I was c- just coming up 20. And um, oh, well, I don't know. He said, well, I'll get you on the course. Don't worry about it. I'll get you on the course. It's at Lillyshaw. It's two weeks in the summer. You've got to go out there and it's a residential course. So I did. That's what I did. And I didn't pass that year. I was green and naive, and my head was in a bit. How of a, old were the other people on the course? Well, we they were, were all they were all predominantly ex-pros that yeah, were finishing their say, careers. Because you always imagine a football coach to be sort of maybe in thirties, forties, fifties, and you were twenty. I, I was mean, twenty. What, yeah. Were you accepted by all the other people? I think they looked at me with a little <laughs> bit of, hmm, you know, who's this, you know, yeah. who's this little whippersnapper, you know? But anyway, I, I, although I didn't pass on that occasion. It taught me so much in terms of what I didn't know. But when you, when you were released by West Ham at, at, at that young age, that must have given you a lot of insight into how to handle those situations later on. Because most definitely, I mean, every, presumably every teenager. I mean, some of them have been with the club since the age of eight or nine, haven't yeah, they? Yeah. And that that moment at the age of I don't know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, to be told, "Well, sorry, you're not going to make it." That yeah. must be the most shattering blow. Yes, I mean, I've had the experience of it myself. Yeah. Uh, and, as you say, as the sort of academy director for many years, you know, I'd had to sit across a desk and tell, you know, a, a boy of the same age or even younger that you know, this is the end of the road as far as you're concerned mm. at West Ham. We don't think you're going to progress anymore. So that was tough. But, you know, I always used to say, I've been in your... I've been on that side of the desk. Yeah. I've been in your seat. So I know exactly how you feel. Life does go on. And I said that there is life after West Ham United. Life goes on. Yeah. And so I try to sort of soften the blow, if you like, uh, a little bit. And when you've sat the other side of the desk, have there been a few that um, have actually then gone on to be really top-class players and you think, oh, my God, how did I let him go? No, uh, to be honest, um, I don't think there's, there's many have gone on and had a career in the game. Yeah. But not, um, would you say, to come back and what you might call embarrass you in terms of, oh, Christ, I made a... A hasty decision there. He's now playing for Liverpool, or he's now playing for England, Didn't, Ireland, or wherever. Because there are a few that I mean, like Tony Adams and yes. John Terry and Ray yeah. Houghton. They they yeah. were all at West Ham. And yeah. I think even Kenny Dalglish had a Kenny trial, Dalglish. Didn't he? Yes, he did. He, he I mean he, he and Gaza. And he was at my age. <laughs> uh, Kenny was yeah. when he came down with a guy named Jimmy Mullen. The two of them, and um, you know, I remember training with them. They came down and. The, the thing that stuck out, and I remember, was the, the, their thick Scottish accents. You know, for me, a boy in the East End, never really been out of London very much. To, to hear a real Scottish Glaswegian mm. brogue was, was um, you know, quite uh, quite strange. Couldn't understand half of what they said. And it was Jimmy Mullen that told me the story about Kenny and the Boots. I don't know, it's, you know, which we'd, I'd relayed in the book. Because Jimmy Mullen emailed me. And many, many, many years later, he wanted to come make one last visit to Upton Park before we, before it was demolished, basically. Yeah. And uh, we met up and 
spoke old times and he said, Do you remember when Kenny come down with me? I said, Yeah, of course I do. And then we told me the story about they blagged a pair of boots off Albert Walker, saying that Ron said we can have a pair of boots from Greenwood. And Albert gave him the boots. He said, he said what, Ron had said no such thing. <laughs> so, you know, a couple of scallywags got a pair of boots off of, off of West Ham. But uh, no, Ray Houghton was one that John, I probably think, probably one John's one big mistake, letting Ray go. We had a young Alan Dickens in the system. And uh, I think he felt that Alan was, you know, far greater potential. Uh, and, and Ray, we used to call him Scotty. Scotty Houghton was... Um, 1819, and he felt he, you know, he'd made his debut against Arsenal at Highbury, uh, but John thought he could let him go because Alan Dickens was coming through, and obviously it, the, the opposite happened. Really, Alan didn't reach the heights we all expected, mm. and Ray went on to great things. So that was a big mistake John made, I think. Tony Adams was different because Steve Potts, Tony Adams, both come out of the Barking District area, and both played for the Barking District football team, and uh, they both come and trained. And Tony was going to Arsenal as well as West Ham. At that time, you could. And uh, Tony decided not to sign for West Ham and sign for Arsenal. And obviously, Potsy decided to stay with West Ham, being a you know staunch West Ham fan. And what a player he was. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Mr. Reliable. Ian Dale's Book Club. You pepper the book with interviews that you've done yes. with some of the former players, which, yes. which I thought was a quite an interesting thing to do. But I mean, we'll come on to one or two of the, the other ones. But I thought it was really interesting with Steve Potts when he played, what, five or six hundred games yeah. for West Ham, didn't he? Either centre back or, yeah, right, or back. right back. Yeah, right um, back, yeah. And I, I saw him play loads of, loads of times. I, I can't actually ever remember him having a bad game. No. He, he was the so called Mr. Yeah. Reliable, wasn't he? He was always seven, eight out of ten. Yeah, and we always wanted him to score a goal. He did score one, I think, didn't he? Bobbled in, didn't (laughs) he? But he talks about his kids in the book and how how they, in a sense, revived his interest in the game and got him back into coaching because he's now, of course, at West Ham as a coach. Yeah. I talked to him back because he used to come over in the evenings with his two boys and um, they're different ages, of course, but... um, and I said, well, why don't you get a little bit involved, you know? Mm. You know, no, no, because he, he was driving a minicab. I yeah, was playing 600 was. games yeah. for West Ham at a very top level. I was driving a London cab. And uh, I said, well, come and do a little bit. You know, come and do a little bit part-time even. Just come in in the evening, do a little bit. And he, he wasn't sure. And he, and then he said to me, yeah, I'll give it a go. And and obviously he's gone on and on and on. And he's now with the under-23s. So, yeah, good on him. He's still, you know, he's still the same old Steve and uh, very humble, feet on the ground and uh, a really nice guy. And his son, Daniel, I remember seeing his debut and I thought it was one of the best debuts I've ever seen at West Ham. But he didn't make it, did he? No. And I thought, I think this was under Sam Allardyce and he just didn't, he got, he's played a few times but yeah. didn't get the chances and then, no. I don't know is he still at Luton I think that's where yeah I went, think he's still he? at Luton yeah I thought he was a fantastic little yeah, player yeah but we all thought that he w- he had what it took you know yeah. I must admit but at the end of the day you know we in the academy and when I say we you know it's it's you know it's not a one man band it's not just me it's mm. a team of coaches and scouts etc and um, we all thought he was going to push on just needed to get a little bit stronger a little yeah. bit physically you know bodily stronger because it's physically demanding and um, like you said you know did he get the opportunities opportunity is massive 
for any young player that there's a manager that can say, mm, I'll see something in him and, and persevere, keep with him. Because that's what one of the themes of the book in a way. It's sort of the ones that got away in terms of either they, because of their own personalities or their own commitment, they didn't quite make it. I mean, there's one that really sticks in my mind who I don't remember. Well, in fact, I think I did see him in one of the Youth Cup finals, Bertie Braley. Oh, Bertie, yeah. Who yeah. you clearly thought had it in him to yes. become a top-class player, but he just didn't have the application. No, quite right. You know, and one or two of the players that I interviewed mentioned Bertie. Yeah. Because um, he was an he was an outstanding youth team player. A like, bit like Adam Newton, the right back, yep. that uh, we all thought, oh, this kid's got, got a future. Didn't quite work out. And um, so it, it isn't just always about talent. It's about application, character, mental strength, you know, being able to handle the lows as well as the highs. Because you talk about some of the players who then you meet a bit later on in their careers, 10 or 15 years down yeah. the line. I'm thinking of Junior Stanislas yeah, junior, here, yeah, yeah. who again looked a super little player for West yeah. Ham at times, scored some fantastic goals, yes. but again never quite made it. And yeah. j- just tell us about sort of the conversation that yeah, you had I mean, with him with, recently. With, with Junior, you know, as a youth team player, I was always on him. because, And the reason I was always on him, because he had real talent. Uh, good manipulator of the ball, could run with it, great delivery of crosses and free kicks and shots, you know. And um, But it, his application at times was wanting and you, you always wanted to push him and and try to take him to the, the level that he didn't really want to go to. When I say didn't want to go to, he didn't want to push himself enough mm. to get there. Where others, you know, Lampards of this world, have pushed and pushed and pushed and reached the heights of the game. But, but with... Um, with uh, Bertie at that time, not Bertie Junior. Sorry, with Junior, I was always on his back. I can remember. I can remember vividly one Friday morning, we were playing Arsenal the following day in an under eighteen league game. So I just wanted to do twenty minutes just with a bit of team shape. We didn't often do that at youth team there, but I thought Arsenal they were going to pass, pass, pass and move, pass around us. Let's just try and be harder to beat. And you know, I was asking Junior to do so, and just wasn't interested. He's what we, you know, what we're doing here. You know, he wasn't interested. He didn't show the, the desire to want to add anything to his game or learn anything tactically, and um, that really, really disappointed me. So I had the ump of him anyway the next day, and we've, I think we lost about five-one. And I remember talking to him the following week, saying, you know, your performance was a direct result of your attitude on Friday morning. And um, a few years later, when I did bump into him, but he did make the first team. I think he played about yeah, 30, yeah. 30, 40 games. I think he played a good few games. Yeah. And maybe that was... He was enough. always one of those that the crowd always urged the manager to bring on yeah. if he was on the bench. They wanted he, to he, see he him. He could do things. He, yeah. you know, he could beat people. He could, put, you know, he could deliver a telling cross. And, um, and you know, obviously he, he left and ended up... I think he went to Burnley initially with Eddie Howe and Jason, Jason Tyndall. And when they went back to Bournemouth, they brought Junior from mm. from uh, Burnley. And Junior ended up playing in the Premier League and is still playing today. And I bumped into him a few years later and he said to me, I wish I'd listened to you when I was 17, <laughs> he said. And because I've now realised that uh, you don't get anywhere in this game without hard work and good application and... And graft. And that's one thing that comes through in the different interviews that you do. And you ask each of the players, and you talk to Michael Carrick, Joe Cole, Rio Ferdinand, Mark Noble, a few others, and you ask them all, so, well, who are the ones that you think could have made it but yeah. didn't and yeah. why? 
And it's interesting that several of them named the same players, yes. don't they? Yes, so it, it's, it, it's, it's amazing. You know, at least with someone like Junior, the penny dropped eventually. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's good. Um, but some don't, you know, they they sometimes don't believe the coach, whether it be me or anybody else. Or they, When I say don't believe, they go, well, you know, I don't really need to do that. You know, I can get by with this and I'll be all right, so to speak. And... Um, you know, you're not all right unless you take care of your your own well-being. And, I mean, Joe Cole and tells an interesting story about the boy that he roomed with at Lillishaw when yeah. he went there. Was it Ian Armstrong? Ian Armstrong, yeah. Who was the only one of his yearly cohort that didn't go on to really make it. I think he ended up playing at Port Vale for a bit, but yeah. then drifted out yeah. of the game. And he said he was a cracking player. Yeah. You, you just sort of look at all of these... I mean, a lot, not just the West Ham ones <coughs> Excuse me, that you talk about in the book, but... All of the, somebody should actually write a book about those that got away and why, and and then give that book to every single sixteen-year-old that signs yeah. in in an academy yeah. at every club, because it must be awful to get to the age of thirty and just keep thinking what might have been. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think today, within academies, and at that time we're talking Joe, sort of mid nineties when he was at Lillyshaw at the National School with um, the lad we're talking about, that uh, there's a lot more care and attention on welfare, mental well-being, and looking for signs of mm. maybe depression or unhappiness. And um, so I think there's there's more care in that respect now. I think it'd be those sorts of traits might be recognised a lot earlier than, than they are rather than go, oh, he's, you know... Let him go yeah. and forget uh, about him. What about the life of a young footballer? Because when when you first joined West Ham in the, in the mid sixties, and and then going through, I would say to maybe the end of the twentieth century. I mean, the, the the kids who were in the academy were expected to earn their keep, really, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. Whereas now. I mean, I don't know how much uh, the average 18-year-old footballer who might be just on the verge of making it into the first team gets paid, but you can't pay someone a few thousand pounds a week and then expect them to clean boots, can no. you? No. Well, what, the, 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 um, what we used to do, because you can sign as a professional at 17 years old, so you sign initially a two-year scholarship. It used to be three when children, kids left school a little bit earlier. But it was 16-18, two-year scholarship. Now, if we had an outstanding player, like a Carrick or a Cole or somebody, and they were showing outstanding talent, we would sign them early at 17. And once we'd signed them professional, they were excused from the jobs, so right. to speak, yeah. in inverted commas. They still used to have to be amongst the youth programme unless they were training with the first team. But um, they were excused excuse the jobs, the menial side mm. of it. But what we did expect them to do, if they weren't doing the jobs, maybe for an hour in the afternoon when we had to tidy up before they'd go home, they'd maybe spend an hour in the gym doing some work. They weren't just sitting in the canteen drinking tea or watching TV or something. So, um, yeah, but a lot of the young lads, funnily enough, didn't mind mucking in. I'll help so so we can get away if we clean the, our job is to clean the home dress room we'll, I'll help him get it clean then we can get going mm. so there, now there was a camaraderie amongst those some of those young players as well and what about the relationship between the first team players and, and the youth team players what, I mean has that changed over the years it has, it has changed now because a lot of clubs and West Ham now are, are on split sides yeah. so the young the young players 
up until the age of 17, 18, really don't come anywhere near the first team players. So, do, so in some respects, the manager don't even know who they are. Some of the players don't really know the younger players. Um, so, so that oh, I think that's that's a trick they've missed a little bit. Well, it is because there's several anecdotes that you tell in the book about where maybe a couple of players are injured in the first team, and then Harry Redknapp would shout over to you, "Can yeah. you send us a midfielder over yeah, here?" Yeah. And the midfielder, I mean, tell the Michael Carrick story. Yeah, I mean that, that exactly what happened, here, and it was um, we were training at Chabble Heath, where everybody trained on the same side. We, I was training on one pitch, Harry and. Frank were, were, were on the other pitch and obviously someone limped off, got a kick on wherever, the ankle or the knee, and they limped off training. So Harry needed another player and he'd, he'd shout across, Tony, I need a midfield player. So he'd obviously send a midfield player over. And I sent over Michael Carrick. And, and he um, would have been how old then? I suppose he'd be 17 at the, at the oldest. 16, 17, yeah. probably about 17. And um, sent Michael over. And... Um, as we finished training, the first team were finishing training, and we was walking off the pitches, and Ayol Berkovic came up to me and said, who is this player you sent over? I can't do the accent, but he, <laughs> he said, who is this player you sent over? So I said, it's Michael Carrick. He went, he will take my place in the team one day. And I went, really? He said, I said, he said yes, most definitely. And the interesting thing is you didn't tell Michael No, Carrick I didn't that. tell Michael that, no. Why not? No, I didn't, I didn't want to... Uh, it raises expectations too highly or too quickly. Uh, and I told him a bit later on. And he went, oh, oh OK. And, and he was already on, he was already amongst the first um, team elite. Was he one that you always thought had a really good chance of making it? Because, of course, he, he came from the northeast, That's didn't right, he? That's right, yeah. And um, why did he sign for West Ham? Yes, it's an interesting one. I mean, I'm not sure if Michael explains it in his interview in the book, but... Um, when I asked him why did you sign for us, you know, in terms of why did you leave the North East? And he said he went to, he used to go to Balls End Boys Club when he was a very young boy, where anyone with any talent in the North East went to uh, Balls End Boys Club. And he said, then I started to train with Newcastle. They picked me up and I started to train with them. And I also was training, I had a little look at Middlesbrough and uh, the clubs up that area. He said, but Newcastle was his team. And he said, as I started to get a bit, all my mates were on at me all the time. Yeah, you know, you're going to make it for Newcastle. Yeah, you're definitely going to be a player for Newcastle. And he said, it tended to put a little bit of pressure on me. He said, and I thought, if I came away from that environment, that might help me develop into the player I want to be. He said, and obviously I came down south. He said, I visited a, a few clubs and, and uh, they visited Chelsea. And it's interesting, his parents said they felt intimidated at Chelsea. That maybe it was too uh, too elite. The whole inv- environment. Oh, sit there, go there. He goes there. You sit there. Whereas when they walked into Chabwell Heath, it was like you know walking into an East End cafe. Hey, come on, <laughs> let's have a sit down, have a cup of tea. You know, a smile on people's faces. And I think he said it was the way they treated his mum. I think exactly. Always treat their mothers well. Yeah, because he said to me, he said, "My mum and dad made no." Um, put no pressure on me to sign for any club. He said, it was my decision. Mm. He said, when, when I knew my mum and dad were felt comfortable at West Ham, he said, and I like the training and I like the coaching and I like the openness about it. He said, um, you know, that, that made a decision for me. And, you know, that, that uh, pleased me really because the whole time 
um, I was there, it was always about creating the right environment. We didn't have the best facilities. We still haven't. They're better, a lot better than they were. But we still haven't, you know, you look at what the Tottenham's, the Chelsea's, yeah. and the Arsenal's have got. You know, West Ham has still got a little bit to do in that respect. But one thing West Ham have got, they've got that homely feeling. And that, it's, it's an old cliche, but it's, it, you know, a family feeling. People feel comfortable. Uh, and when a, when a kid has got, well, with the parents as well, of course, because mo- mostly I suspect the parents do have an influence on the decision. Um, when they've got three or four clubs that are chasing, and that that really can be, I think Joe Cole said this, that that's the crucial thing as yeah. to why he decided to go with West Ham. Because I yeah. think, was he an Arsenal supporter originally? I can't remember. I think he was Chelsea. Was he Chelsea? I think it was Chelsea. No. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was Chelsea. Because I mean, a natural thing, presumably, is you, you ideally want to go to the club that you support. Yeah. But then again, if you feel more comfortable and at uh, home somewhere else then then there's a good chance you're going to sign with them and i think that was that again that's one of the themes of the book and that you created this atmosphere i mean was it deliberate did you actually oh, yeah. sit down and think right this is what we need to do or was it just you as a person managed to yeah i think it was something that uh in some ways i inherited that that was the way they wanted to do things you know in john's day when he was with yeah. the youth program always make the parents feel comfortable they, they, they mustn't ever feel intimidated by walking in the door they must feel comfortable they can sit down put the tv on watch a bit of tv while the kids are training or they can go and watch the training whichever and uh and i carried that on you know and developed it you know the facilities got a little bit better but it was almost it, it, it was it was um it was a conscious effort to make sure that, that we maintain that with the coaches you know, and I used to say to the coaches, the only reason we're all here is for the is for the players. It's not mm. the other way around. You know, they're not here for us. We're here for them. Uh, so it's important that we respect that and, and, and respect the young players and do the best we can by them. You know, and the same with the parents. If it wasn't for the parents ferrying their children backwards and forwards, uh, you know, we, we owe them a debt. Because, you know, you, they, they didn't get travel expenses or anything like that, where some clubs were paying travel expenses, but West Ham never did. Ian Dale's Book Club. How, and this has presumably changed over the ages, but how old can must a player be before they get a regular monthly or weekly salary? Well, it's when they leave school and sign as a... They call it scholarships now. It's it's, it's apprenticeships, same, just a different word. Because it's educational and football training. That that, that goes hand in glove now. And is it the case that, I mean, if if you've got a potential star player on your hands, they can be earning, even at the age of 16, 17, thousands of pounds a week? No, they can't. Because you cannot sign a professional until you're 17 years old. Right. So at 16... Until your 17th birthday, for instance, the figures are set out by the Premier League. Okay. So every club in the country, I think it was, it's probably around about £150 a week now, uh, per player, obviously. And they get their travelling expenses paid, I and mean, obviously they get, they get a lunch at the training ground, and they get 150 a week, and... Uh, probably pay, I don't know what the thresholds are, tax thresholds, but probably pay no tax on them yeah. either. So, and it's not until they're 17 that they might be earning, you know, three, four, five thousand, six thousand pound a week. And that presumably brings its own pressures, something yes. which in, in your day as a player w- mm. would have been unthinkable, how to handle money, for example. Yes, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, what you'll find now, though, is that that's taken care of by agents. Because yeah. the best players will have agents, even, dare I say it, even, you know, the worst player in the squad will have an agent. And mm. I don't mean it as a dis- in dis- yeah. disrespectful, because they all feel it's the thing to do. I've got to have an agent, I've got to have an agent. They don't really. And would you have to deal with the agents, or would that be yeah. somebody else? Yeah, at the young age, I'd have to deal with the agent, yeah. And, I mean, that must be quite difficult, given, yeah, it can depending be. who the agent is, I suppose. Some agents are very good, very fair, uh, understanding in terms of not raising the bar too quickly, too early, uh, and some want it now. Yeah. And um, and in some ways, that de incentivize the player in some respects, because if he's already negotiated, because he's a real player... At that age, you think, Christ, this kid's got something. You know, oh, yeah, I say a Rooney, for instance. You go 70, he's in the team. Christ almighty, what a player this is. We've got, we've got to give him top top mm. dollar, you know, relatively speaking. And that can turn him a little bit. So I'm reluctant to um, pay too much, but it's sometimes you've got your arm twisted up your back. It's, it's difficult. difficult. Yeah, you look at sort of, I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, Declan Rice, I suppose, where... He got his chance at a reasonably young age, yeah. t- grabbed it with both hands. I think he had an agent to begin with, but now I think his father and his brother are Yeah, I think so. Him. I think it's it's within the family, yeah. which I think is a good thing, because I think then the agent or the representative or the advisors, whichever you want to, whatever you want to call them, they're doing it for Declan. They're not doing it for what they're getting out of it. Mm. I mean, they'll get they'll get a fee, obviously. All agents get a fee. Uh, but um, some agents will try and tout their player to the club that that he gets the biggest yeah. fee. Uh, and would you come under a lot of pressure from agents saying, "Well, why isn't he in the first team?" So he's not some. Gonna, he's not going to stay with you unless you make sure he gets yeah. in the first team. Some, which... but I would, you know, I would negate that by saying, "Well, look, I don't make that decision." Mm. But you know, if you want if you want a decision on that, you've got to go and speak to the manager because I don't make that decision. I can only put the player in front of the manager. He's in the squad. And one of the in- who really, he picks. One of the other really interesting things in the book is, is the relationship that the youth team coach has with the manager. Where I mean, you relate one episode where um, I think it was Alan Pardew sold Chris Cohen, and you. The first thing you knew, you knew about it when you was when you read it on the website. That's right. Yeah, and th- this was a player who was seen as probably better than Mark Noble at the time. Well, they they came to the club yeah. together, same age, and I, and Chris made his debut before Mark. Yeah, and, um, and I can remember thinking he looks as and, if he and could I'll be think, a really good I'll, player. I think he you know he, he could have and should have stayed with us. It wasn't my decision, and you know I wasn't even aware of it. Um, but you know the manager managers work in different ways, and he didn't feel a need to perhaps tell me. You know, but you say it was on the basis of one dodgy performance when he was playing at left back, when he's actually a central midfielder. Exactly, he was, and on that basis, he was sold to was it Nottingham Forest? I think no, originally Yeovil, Yeovil Town for thirty twenty five thirty five thousand yeah. pounds, and he's actually had a good career with Nottingham and then, Forest. I think then they he? sold him yeah. for nigh on you know eight, eight nine hundred thousand yeah. pounds to to Notts Forest. Now had a great career yeah. at Notts Forest. He's now at Luton as a coach. Um, I went up to his uh, testimonial dinner. He had a testimonial dinner at Nottingham when he was retiring. And um, his agent, who I knew very, very well, a nice guy, Dave Geis, he, um, 
he um, invited me up and said, would you like to come up? I said, I'd love to. I hadn't seen Chris for many a year. Mm. But, you know, it's one that maybe could have done better if he'd have stayed at the club. But I mean, did, these things happen. You don't really relate many clashes that you would have had with managers over that sort of thing. I mean, did you go and see Alan Pardew and say, what earth are you no, doing? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. The, the, the deed was done. Um, the deed was done, so there was no point in creating a scene or uh, having an argument um, about that. I just showed my disappointment, you know, and I said it to Mark during the interview, and, and Mark was saying it, he, he felt exactly the same yeah. at the time. Um, but, um, no, there's no point in that, in that respect, creating a scene, because I suppose it's a bit of self-preservation as well um, amongst that. Um, if I felt very, very strongly, obviously you would, you know, about certain things, mm. um, which I, I, I did in on certain occasions. Um, but in that respect... You know, the manager, if you like, holds the upper hand. You know, he's got the voice of the ball. The ball, ball, the ball would are going to back the manager before they back the youth coach, basically. So I thought, well, there's no point, you know, no point in creating a, creating a fuss. Which manager do you think was... I mean, let's take um, John Lyle out of the equation yeah. here, because I think most West Ham fans would just say, well, he was the best manager yeah. we've ever had. Let's look at all the others. Which of them do you think were the best as regards giving youth players a chance, taking an interest in them, going to the games, knowing who they were? I think you've got to say Harry, because Harry blooded a lot of young players at that time, Harry Redknapp, um, was interested in youth teams uh, and youth players. Uh, could be and was very critical at times about the way things were done or this player or, or methodology. Yeah, you were really angry with him once, weren't you? Yes, you know, it was the <laughs> semi-final at Goodison Park. You know, yeah. we were played in the FA Youth Cup. We'd won the first leg 3-0 to get to the final of the FA Youth Cup. And me and Peter Braybrook, who was my assistant at that time, um, we felt we were vulnerable at set plays. We were lucky not to concede at a couple of set plays and corners. So we spent the week between the two games basically ticking the players over but tactically working on better organisation at set plays because I felt if you know we concede early in a game they're going to keep peppering us with crosses mm. and all sorts and getting free kicks and corners and so on. So um, to be honest, on the night we didn't play that great. We didn't play that well. And they scored, uh, they won 1-0 and they scored in the 89th minute. So it was a 3-1 aggregate win. So we won one. We lost 1-0, but won the overall tie. And me and Peter shook each other's hands out with a go. And I just said to Pete, job done, Pete. You know, we're in the final. And he went, yeah, terrific, isn't it? So the chairman come in and he, he said just a few words. Well done, lads. Terry Brown, that was. And the chief exec, Paul Audrey, they both come in. And Harry and Frank came in. And you know, to my surprise, Harry tore into him a little bit and said, you know, you didn't play well. You didn't pass the ball. Poor movement. You know, you've got to be braver on the ball. And... And and um, he was quite angry about it. He was angry about the performance rather than mm. you know the result. But I just felt it was you know it was a cup competition, job done. We were in the final, and um, but I think we made up for it in the final over the two legs against Coventry because we gave a you know an absolute first class performance in the second leg at Upton Park. Yeah, I think I I remember going to I don't I can't remember whether it was that or whether it wasn't there was one against Liverpool as well wasn't there? Yeah, that was a few years early with Frank and Rio in the team. I think I went to that one. Yeah, we lost two 0 at Upton Park. Yeah, 
and we again we didn't play particularly well. Liverpool were better than us on the night. Then we went to Anfield. We were two 0 down on aggregate, and we scored in the first minute. Frank Lampard scored, great goal. Our folly from the edge of the box, really good goal. Fired it in. So two one game on basically, and it was two one up until about two minutes to half time. We had two corners, got flicked on at the near post. It was Lee boiling at the back post. All he had to do was put his head to it and put it in, and he put his head to it and put it wide. So that would have been 2-2 and not to be. And then they broke away and scored and, and restored the two-goal advantage. Mm. And you know, obviously they won the tie overall. But um, Steve Highway came onto the pitch with me and after the game to congratulate his team. And, you know, and I commiserate him with my, with my team. And he said, to him, he said to me, well done. He said, we've done our jobs anyway before this game. He said, you've got two, great, two or three great players. He said, and I've got, I think I've got a couple of good players here because they had Carragher, they had Owen. Yeah. And I think uh, as Gerard was on the bench, I believe. And um, so he put it into perspective, really. It was nice to win, but it was all about developing players for the team. What about Sam Allardyce? Because, I mean, he, he famously, um, I mean, the crowd always wanted him to blood youth team players. Yeah. He was very, seemed very reluctant to. And then there was that FA Cup game where there yeah. was, we had a lot of injuries. And he, I think he put five or six in yeah. the team and they lost 5-1. How, how does that affect a young player to be put in that kind of no. situation. I think um, I think Sam was, was good for us. His, his brief was to get us up and he did it in the first year, albeit by the playoffs. But that FA Cup tie at Notts Forest, I think, uh, obviously, there was a cry to blood youngsters. I don't know his motives. Maybe he didn't have any any other players to put in the team. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But I think he may have put them in the team just to say, well, look, this is how good you think these are. I'll yeah. put them in the team. You know, and you put five youngsters in, in an yeah. FA Cup tie away from home. Uh, and we got spanked, really. 
And um, I can't remember who they were, but did, did, I any, think there was, did any of them go on to make it? I'm, just, I'm trying to remember the four or five that played. I, I know John Munker Jr. played. Uh, I can't remember now. No. So just, I can't. <laughs> I'll have to get the book. I'll have to get the, we'll have the internet, the, the teams. I don't know. But, but it, I can remember I said, I, I, no, I mean, privately I was saying to myself. I'm going to Google it now. Yeah, I, privately I was saying to myself, um, Oh, he slaughtered them players, you know, in that respect. He's, uh, he's hung them out to dry a little bit. But uh, certainly... Um, was it 5-1, I think? Yeah, 5-1 in it? the end. I think it was a period where it was maybe 2-1, and we had, I think we had a chance to equalise. And uh, But it, well, I think we collapsed at, at, towards the end of the game. Here we are. No, it was 5-0. 5-0, was it? All right, yeah. OK. We had, must have had a chance at 1-0. Um, all right, let's scroll down to the line-ups. Yeah, I think it was a centre half there that played. I'm just trying to remember his name. He did. He played. So a... Matt Jarvis, um, Stuart Downing, and uh, that must be Daniel Potts played. Yeah, Danny Potts. And must then Di- Alu Diara. Well, he only ever played about three games. For yeah, us, didn't exactly. He? Yeah. Callum Driver. Callum Driver. Yeah, right back. Whitehead. Whitehead. Yeah. Dan one? Whitehead. Danny Whitehead. Um. That American Sebastian, I never yeah, know how Sebastian you Sebastian Leggett. Yeah. yeah. Maiga, Ravel Morrison, and George Moncur. Yeah, oh, George Moncur, John's yeah. son, yeah. So there was George, there was Callum Driver that played right back. He he he, he, um, he didn't go on and do much. George went on and had a, I think he's still played playing somewhere. He's played in Scotland quite a lot. Yeah. Was it Hull City? Yeah, I think, I think he. He ended up playing at various clubs at Hull City, I think at Rotherham at one point. I think he's up in Scotland now. Ian Dale's Book Club. David Moyes seems to me to have a very different attitude, a slightly old-fashioned attitude, but um, he's not afraid to blood youth players, is he? Um, no, it doesn't, and doesn't seems seem to, to be, take yeah. a real interest in what the youth team is doing. Hmm. I'm sure he does. I mean, I'm not there day to day, as you know, Ian, anymore. But, uh, you know, I keep in touch with Kevin Keane, who's, who's now with the uh, youth team, and speak to Potsy occasionally. God, he, and, uh, he, he used to get absolutely hammered by the chicken run, didn't yeah. he, Elton Park, when he was uh, on the wing? Yeah. Was, I always remember that season when he was down one side and Mark Robson was down the other. Yeah. And I thought though, that was, from, from a point of view of wing play, I've never seen anything better than that season with those yeah. two. Yeah. Mark Robson, he, is he back? He's back. He's with the under-23s. Yeah. He's just come back about three months ago. And there's another player I wanted to talk to you about from that time who I thought should have been a top-class player, Matthew Rush. Yeah, Rushy, yeah. I thought he was super. Yeah, he was a twin. We had two, the two of them. We had Marcus and Matthew. Marcus was uh, a complete opposite to Matthew. Matthew would loved his football. Marcus was a good player, but didn't have the heart for, for the work that was required. And Matthew was, Matthew for me, was a slight underachiever. Yeah, could have done better. Should have done better. Great physique. Um, scored some with amazing ball, scored goals. Some really good so, goals. Uh, one against Norwich. I yeah, remember. Norwich. I remember. Oh I think in God. the end, he, Norwich bought him. I think yeah, they did. Norwich. Yeah. And uh, I remember Bonzo, Billy Bonds, was the manager and blooded him, and he loved him. But he kept me having to, come on, Matthew, you can do better, you can do more. You know, you've got it in your locker, come on. Yeah. So he always had to be motivated. And um, 
you know, and a manager wants a player that he, he knows what he's going to get from him. Because there, there are some people... Who's a good player, though. That he was a good player, that, but they just have a personality that cannot be changed. And no. There are some people you can at least change around the edges, but there are some that you just can't. No, exactly. You that know, must be really frustrating for yeah, a coach. Yeah, it is. So that, is fr- that is frustrating, that, you know, no matter what advice you give them and how you wrap it up, because you think of ways, you know, what, what's, well, what's mm. going to get him out of his shell today? There was one player, centre-half, Callum McNaughton. I think he played about two games for the first team. He had the basic ingredients. Tall, slim, decent pace. Not great on the ball, but OK on the ball. Good, Quite good in the air. But just played like this, you know. With, <laughs> he played expressionless. And you think, well, come on, show some emotion. Because the game is... The game is a game of emotion. You've got to, you know, you've got to be aggressive. You've got to be calm. You've got to be, you know, joyful mm. when it goes well, and you've got to be angry when things are not going. It's, 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 it, you know, it's an emotional game, and um, he just played with, with no emotion. And uh, I was constantly trying to think ways. You know, what, you know, what what rocks his boat? This guy, and, and I never did win the battle on that one. And he he left, and I don't know what he's doing there. Let's talk about Joe Cole, who fascinates me. Um, I would never have thought that he would be develop into a really brilliant media pundit. I'd never have thought that he would have managerial ambitions. And he's just one of these players that have, has finished playing, clearly wants to have a, an involvement in the game still. And... But he's still got that sort of infectious enthusiasm that he would have had as a 19-year-old. When, yeah. Tell us about the Joe Cole story about how he came to be at West Ham and sort of how he yeah. developed. But, you know, you said it there, you know, he's still got that youthful, in, in, you know... Can't believe he's 40. I mean, yeah, he just that youthful enthusiasm. still looks about 20, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, you know, and, and he had that from day one. Um, we had a scout named Dennis Coxall who used to do the sort of London region for us. And Jimmy Hampson was our head of recruitment. And he had told Jimmy about his kid he'd seen. He said, I've never seen a better kid for his age. So Jimmy said, well, bring him along. Bring him next. Bring him on whatever it was, Tuesday training. And um, we brought him to training on Tuesday. And it was during half term. And we had a game, a little friendly game in the afternoon. And Joe was going to play in this game. And uh, Jimmy Hampson had said to Harry Redknapp, who was the manager, Harry, if you've got five minutes, come and have a look at this kid we've got out here. He said, he's, he's, he's got something, we think. You know, he's only 13, 14. He's, he's got something really different. Harry went, yeah, 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 I'll be out. You know, I'll be out. To be fair to Harry, he, he did come out. It was at Chabble Heath, and he came out. And you watch Joe play, and not in a funny way, but he made you laugh. <laughs> because it was what he did was so infectious. It was so audacious, but effective. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just mm. a, a trick pony. It was infectious. They would go go past people. He would, like, drop a shoulder and put it through people's legs. He'd flick it over people's shoulders and get on the other side of people. And and, and if he lost it, he'd go after it, get on his backside and tackle. You know, it, it, it was pl- like playground football. But, you know, in, in, in a... A professional team's environment, but it was like a playground football. And you speak to Joe, that's where he learned his game in, in the playground, yeah. basically, on his estate where he lived. And um, Harry said, Go and get me Dave the Gate. There was a guy on the big guy on the gate, Dave, who, you know, who are you, who you come to see? 
said, go and get me Dave the gate. Dave, come on, what do you want, Harry? You know, <laughs> he said, lock those gates. He said, don't let anybody out until I've spoken to Joe Cole's parents. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and because uh, obviously Harry was very, very impressed. And uh, of course, eventually he did sign for us. And uh, again, I think you speak to Joe, he just felt that he could he could relax at West Ham and he enjoyed the environment and he enjoyed yeah. the coaching and his parents liked it. His parents liked the down-to-earthness about the club. There was no airs and graces about the club or the people. Uh, and and they could come in and relax and be be themselves. And, and he was a player that I think we all knew about yes. years before yes. he made his debut. Yeah. And the, the, everyone was saying, there's this guy, he's, he's going to come through. Were you always confident that he would make it? I was confident that he would, but I was worried that the the publicity yeah. surrounding him would have an, a, a negative effect. And Because um, Manchester United tried to poach him, oh, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, I mean, a fairly time. serious way. Yeah, oh, yeah. And Chelsea. And Chelsea as well. I think Glenn Hodder was the manager at the time. I think Chelsea as well, but you know, Fergie. So I think Fergie offered him cup final tickets yeah. and go, it was going to take him on the coach. Yeah. I mean, that would turn anyone's head. Yeah, but, exactly. But his father was really important there, yeah, wasn't he? Massive. Well, his father, George, God rest his soul, he's, he's died. Uh, in effect, it was his stepfather, but really, really lovely guy. Um, ordinary guy, street trader, taxi driver. Um, and. He, he said to me and Jimmy Hampson, me and Joe are going to go and have a look at one or two clubs. Joe wants to have a little look round at clubs. He said, but he's going to sign up at West Ham. So I said, well, I'd rather you sign that form now, George, <laughs> and I'll put it in the drawer. And when you come back, I'll register you. He went, you don't need that. He said, all you need is my hand. And he shook, shook my hand. He said, there's my contract. And obviously he was true to his word. And he shook my hand and Jimmy's hand and he said, that's all you need, just my hand. He said, we'll be back. And he said, and he said he's just going to go and have a look at clubs just to see what they're like. And of course, uh, when, when, when you're like eight, nine, ten years old, often at that time and before, you would play with West Ham on a Monday or train with West Ham on a Monday, Tottenham on a Tuesday, yeah. Arsenal on a Thursday. Yeah, that could... Do, does that still happen now? No, it can't happen now because right. what happens now is that um, you have to sign an academy form and the, the day you sign that academy form at 10 years of age, you are now registered with that football club. Mm -hmm. So in effect, you, you can leave at the end of that yearly contract... But the club that signs you have to pay you compensation for that player. Yeah. Now, depending on the age group, how long he's been there and, and then his pedigree. So if he leaves at 16 just before he leaves school and he's been there eight years, for instance, from eight to 16, uh, there'd be it's quite a hefty sum. Because so you had to pay Charlton for Jermaine Defoe, Yeah, we had to pay you? Charlton for Jermaine. Yeah. And, and because we couldn't agree a fee and Charlton didn't want to take a fee, it has to go to a, a, a tribunal. And I've said it in the book. I think they try to use West Ham as a as a sort of a, 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 a lesson for people to take heed. We're going to because we had to pay four hundred thousand, mm. which was unheard of for a schoolboy. Unheard of. Worth it for him though. Worth it in the end, <laughs> but you know, it, it did put a lot of pressure on us because yeah. I was certain that Jermaine had it what it took, but you never know. 
you know, and obviously we got our five or six million a few years later and all the appearances and goals. So that 400,000 powered into insignificance. But um, no, it was uh, it was like a punishment. I thought it was a punishment. And I thought, well, it's not a punishment because the boy decided to leave. We wanted to sign him. So we went through the proper channels of compensation. And um, obviously Charlton were very pleased with the figure they got. But uh, I don't think our chairman was at the time. He was a few years later, but not at the time. Yeah. Josh Pask. That was an interesting yeah. anecdote towards the end of the book. Yeah. Um, just, just tell us about him. Yeah, Josh Josh was, a, a, again, a player that um, I thought had great potential. I really did. But there was a... I wouldn't call it a character flaw, but there was a... a flaw in his makeup that... He didn't show enough emotion and he didn't show enough desire at times. Although inwardly he must have... He was a very nice kid and a, from a very nice family. And he kept refusing to commit to the club. We'd offered him a scholarship. He just kept refusing to, to take it. He, want, he wanted to go to Arsenal. Arsenal, Arsenal, to be honest, were tapping him up. And um, we, 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 would have, we would have had to receive compensation for him, but you know, I'd, I'd basically given up hope. Now we're into the end of May. The season's finished. There's no more training. And Josh had, you know, not committed. And uh, I'd gone off on holiday for a week to my son. My son lives in France. And um, I was about to sit down for lunch and Dave Hunt rung me. He was outside uh, in a little cafe. And um, he said, Karen's been on, Karen Brady. And she wanted an update on what's happening with Josh Pask. So he said, well, he won't commit, he won't sign. You know, we've tried everything. We've offered him a contract, we've offered him a pro contract. He won't commit. And it's not to do with the money. He just feels Arsenal play better football than West Ham. And that was... <laughs> Which at that point was probably yeah. maybe a fair judgment. Anyway, so... <laughs> Less so nowadays. He said, Karen just said, well, he, Dave said... Uh, Tony's on holiday for a week, and she said, "Well, tell Tony to come back and have one more go at him. You and you and uh, Tony go around his house, have one more go." And to be fair, I did do that. I said, "Book me a flight, Nice to London. I'll come back." I didn't have enough, so we went round his house. Uh, the kit man picked me up in a van, took me round his house at Manor Park, and me and Dave sat in the the, the house uh, for three or four hours trying to talk to the parents and. The boy stayed upstairs in his bedroom, didn't come down once, which I thought was a bad sign. I thought, well, I've got no chance here. But I persevered, I persevered, and I just said to him, this is how much we think of you, of your, your young Josh. So I've broken a holiday, you know, to come back to, to have one more go, you know, to, at, at uh, convincing you to sign for West Ham. And um, he didn't commit on that night. I stayed overnight in, a, in the airport hotel, flew back to Nice the next day. And when I got back um, a week or so later, Dave Hunt said, Josh Pash is going to sign. I said, oh, is he? He said, yeah. He's, he said he was so impressed that you'd broke your holiday that, uh, you know, that's how much you felt you wanted him to sign, that he, 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 he signed for West Ham. 
Sadly, it didn't quite work out, but he's now playing for Coventry. What was the clinching argument when you said, look, mate, I'm going to face the wrath of Karen Brady if he doesn't sign? Yeah, no, I did, no, no, to be fair, Karen was right. You know, have one more go, you know, yeah. never to lose, and give her a credit for that. Although it broke, you know, a day on my holiday, but in the end, if, if it had been a player that, and I think he was, he'd got a squad number, I think he played one game yeah. or came on a sub in one game. Um, so he was he, he was almost the finished article, almost didn't quite work out. It would have been, you know, it was it was worth it anyway because he's mm. a good lad and um, a, a decent player, and it didn't quite work out for him. But um, that's the way it goes. There have been various different owners of West Ham over the years. I mean, in in your job, how much contact would you have with the owners, or, or maybe none at all? Uh, not really. Um, in the earlier days, it was the Kearns family. And I had a, a, a quite a good relationship with Martin Kearns, Len Kearns, who was chairman's son, who, who Martin eventually became chairman, because he used to come watch a lot of youth matches. So we'd always used to bump in, and he came on a couple of youth tours when we had youth tours at the end of the season or pre-season. And so he was always very interested in the youth and took a lot of interest in that. So I was quite um, close to him there. Um, when um, Terry Brown took over, Got on quite well with Terry Brown and Paul Aldridge, who was the chief exec. They were very interested. Terry, especially the chairman, was very um, youth orientated. You know, if I went to him within reason and wanted something, invariably, he'd, you know, he'd find a way of mm. finding whatever it was I needed or wanted. If it's an extra staff or new equipment or something, you know, he'd find ways of uh, of uh, finding finding the money or finding a way to do it because money was always. The issue at West Ham always has been. Yeah. Money has always been the issue. You know, we're at the maximum of our budget, we can't spend any more, etc. And um, Terry Brown, the Icelandics, took over, didn't they? They were quite. They didn't have a problem splashing around the money. No, we, you know, I, I went to them one day and I asked them, you know, to upgrade our facilities at Chadwell Eve, could, could we build like a viewing gallery for the sports hall? So the parents make a, you know, state of the art viewing gallery and little tea bar. So they could, you know, knock an hole in the wall, mm. put a little structure up, and his chairman said, go and do it. Or Eggertson said, go and yeah. do it. And uh, we got knocked back because they said that uh, Dagenham and Redbridge Council or Barking Council wouldn't give planning permission. I think that was a bit of a ruse, really, but I'm not sure. But we didn't get it done. But they were free. and he, Yeah, go and do it. Go and do it. They, would, they never turned away anything. You know, even Scott Duxbury, who was the... Uh, Chief Exec, who's now chairman of Watford Football Club. Um, now, he was very, uh, very, very good. And, but the good thing about the Icelandics and Scott was that it was them that gave me my testimonial. I want to come on to that yeah. in, in a moment. My memory of Scott Duxbury, I had lunch with him and Greg Demetrio, who's the press officer. Yeah, at the he's time. now nice, working for nice the FA, Greg, yeah. yeah. And the thing I remember about Scott Duxbury, I was fascinated. I've never met a man with manicured eyebrows before. Yeah. I thought, what do I make of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but nice guy. Yeah, um, it, was, it was good. He was good to me. He was yeah. he was good to me, Scott. And uh, again, always tried to help where he could if there was a request for something. You know, mm. like for instance, once I wanted a, all all the coaches that were at um, the academy as a sort of end of season tree and educational trip. We went for three days to visit Juventus in Turin to watch training for their youth players. 
And uh, they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, it was going to cost about 15000 you know, two nights in a hotel, flights to Turin, etc. You know, so we go easy, Jet. We ain't going, you know. And, uh, yeah, do it. I think it's a good idea, really good idea. And we did it. So things like that, they were very, yeah. very good. And Scott was very good in the Icelandics. And then obviously after the Icelandics, uh, Gold Sullivan Brady came in, or Golden Sullivan bought it, and Karen came in as their uh, chief exec. And she was more hands-on? Very much so, yeah. In a good way or, or bad way? I, I think she has her finger... I think all that, she's got a finger on the, pulse of, on, on the pulse of what's going on within the football club. You see, that's interesting. She rules, she rules with a fist of iron. Because <coughs> a lot of fans think that because she does The Apprentice and she's in the House of Lords, that she's a bit part-time at West Ham, but you, that's not your experience. No, it's not my... I mean, I, I don't think she comes in every single day, or she didn't in, in you know, my, my time. And then, and then when she was doing The Apprentice, she may have been off for... A couple of weeks, but most certainly she'd have been on the end of the telephone. She would know what's going on on yeah. a daily basis. And there was a problem, you know, they'd ring her and, and she'd sort it. But um, she, you know, she she was she's a tough cookie. You know, she she she's got to be to 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 survive in basically a man's world in that respect. Although a lot more women are in the game now than, yeah. than they were when she first started. Um, back in 1989, when um, John Lyle resigned, uh, mm. you put your name forward. Yeah. Or was it Lee McCarry resigned? No, no John, John, Lyle. John was, his contract wasn't renewed, was yeah. the official thing, but yeah. it's basically been said. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I said resign, because he didn't resign. Um, you put your name forward yeah. to be the manager. Um, was that something that you'd always wanted to do, or the opportunity came up and you thought, okay, well, I'll put, put that... Yeah, I think I'm not going to lose anything by doing Exactly. It. I think that's what it was, Ian. The opportunity was there. If John had stayed, I'd been happy just doing what I was doing. Yeah. Um, so the opportunity... And, and, and what I said earlier, I thought, well, whoever comes in, you know, may make, take, make a clean sweep anyway and get rid of us, so I might as well try and look after my own... Um, my own business and try and go get for get the job you know whether i was prepared good enough or not i don't know but i'll apply and see what happens but i got an interview i went and spoke to the board i sat in front of the board and they asked me various questions and how i would deal with this player how i would deal with that player and uh who would be your staff how would you restructure it etc etc so i got that far but obviously they chose lou Macari because of lou's uh, experience mm. Let's talk about your testimonial because I, I, I was actually, I actually got quite emotional reading about it. It must have been a very emotional time for yeah, you. Yeah, it was very much so. I think initially, um, when Scott rang me, Scott, I was there by the way. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Um, when Scott came, uh, when Scott rang me, uh, he said, um, the, "You know, we we decided we want to give you a testimonial." So I said, oh, fantastic. Oh, dear. I was completely out of the blue. I was sitting in the car park at Barnet Football Club waiting for the team to arrive because West Ham Reserves were playing Arsenal Reserves. It doesn't get much more glamorous than that, does it? So I was it? sitting in the car park, yeah, at Barnet Football Club and obviously taking that call. And I thought I was quite... When I've, and Scott said, he doesn't have to do anything. He said, we'll organise it or we'll do it all. Don't worry about it. So I said, oh, lovely. He said, we'll sort out the opposition. He said, well, you won't have to do a lot. Oh, terrific, terrific. So that's how, the, that's how it started. And obviously, Scott was dismissed. Karen came in with Golden Sullivan. And one of my first conversations with Karen, you know, I've been granted a testimonial, Karen. Um, will the club still honour it? And she said, oh, yes, yes. She said, as long as it doesn't cost us anything. <laughs> Which is fair enough, you know. You know. She said, as long as it doesn't. But it, I had to hire the ground 
for the night uh, for one pound. So it's like a, a token uh, gesture because it has to be seen that you've hired the ground for the evening. So how does it work when... Who was, do you have to pay for the people manning the turnstiles? Or well, does the yes, club pay yeah, for yeah. That's, no, the club don't pay anything. Uh, what happens is um, we, we, we set up a committee because technically speaking... Um, you don't. Um, I'm not allowed to organise it. Right. I don't know the reason why, but I'm not. But you, obviously, you're in the background. You do. Yeah. So I had a committee. So I had a business guy, mine of Essex, Keith and Keith Cosby. I had Dave Geis, who was a, an accountant and football agent, and I had Tony Cotty and Alvin Martin on my committee, and um, it was their job to, you know organise what we could organise in terms of talking to the club and the stewards for the night um, to a man said we'll do it and we won't take any fee one or two that did want to take a fee or a reduced fee some took a reduced fee just to cover their expenses um, I have to pay through the receipts of the yeah. of the football uh, from, the, from the match so I have to print the programmes, I have to pay for the programmes. Um, policing, I, I think there was minimal policing, which the police paid for themselves, because it was quite minimal. And um, the hardest part was, who are we going to play? Jan Franco Zola was the manager, and he said, no, no, we put out the first team, not a problem. We'll, we'll talk. So I had to organise the date with Jan Franco, and it, it was the... Tuesday night, Wednesday night, before the last, very last game of the Premier League season, which was the following Sunday. And um, so it was always difficult to get teams to commit players um, because if they've got one more game left. Yeah. So I didn't, I, I was going to, I asked the FA if they, if I could put together an England 11. And I thought to myself, well, a lot of the England 11 were players that I'd worked with and coached anyway. And use a little bit of artistic license, you know, get some under twenty three England internationals, <laughs> and etc. <coughs> but Adrian Bevington, who was at the FA at the time, and I think he's still there. I'm not sure. Um, there was too many barriers to overcome. And I was at Chelsea one day at um, Cobham, the training ground with the academy one Sunday morning, because I, I used to go home and away sometimes. Sometimes I'd go to Little Heath, watch the home games. The away game, I, this time I go, I go to Cobham today. It's always a big test playing Chelsea because they're one of the best academies. And I was on the sideline watching the game. I didn't realise it, but the Chelsea first team were running around the perimeter of the pitch, having a warm down from the, the Saturday, and they had a European tie the, in the midweek. And as I was standing on the touchline, I saw two players running towards me in Chelsea kit, you know, the training kit, and it was Frank and John Terry. They come running over to me. Oh, hello, guys. And they come and give me a little hug and a little shake in the hands. How are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, yeah, good. I'll come back and watch the game in a minute. So he said, when I'm, when I'm changed, I'll come back and have a chat, which Frank did. And he said to me, I've heard you've got a testimony. I said, yeah, I have. He said, what, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'm trying to think, you know. He said, why don't you get an academy eleven? He said, I spoke to a few players already. He said, they're, they're all desperate to come and play. I said, that's a good idea. He said, will you play? And of course I will. Not a problem. 
And I said to John Terry, will you play? He went, yeah, yeah, I'll play. I said, no, no, you wasn't the academy, uh, you know, as long as the other lads. He said, well, yeah, I was still there, wasn't I? I said, oh, yeah, I'll play. But that was quite something. And that's how it was born. That was quite something for Frank to do, because at that time, 2010, I mean, he was still very unpopular with yeah. the West Ham crowd, wasn't yeah. he? And, and he'd, I mean, he'd said a few things in the press that maybe I think I suspect now he might have regretted yeah so that was quite something for him to do yeah I mean I, I think that showed great respect to me I think I really do I, yeah and, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote about him about 2016-2017 I was at a party conference in Manchester and he was playing for Manchester City at the time yeah and we walked into this restaurant and he was there with Christine Blakely and um, we we had a table around the corner and my boss said to me, well, you go, go and talk to him. I said, I can't talk to him. It's in a restaurant. It'd be really rude. So what I did, I sent him a bottle of champagne and I, I wrote something on the um, sort of a note just saying, see, West Ham fans aren't all bad. So some of us appreciate what you did for us. All right. And he... So getting quite emotional, and he came around the corner and talked to us about half an hour. Yeah, now that's Frank all over. He, very grounded. F- his feet's always on the ground. You know, when I was um, asked for the interviews, um, not a problem. Whenever, and his when is can one you get the most thoughtful? Yeah, and we we spent the whole afternoon talking, yeah. and, and I was recording it on my phone. And um, when I asked later on, the publisher said to me, "Could you?" get some quotes for these young, from these... I said, what players do you want? He went, we want Frank Lampard, Rio Ferdinand, Mark Noble. So I WhatsApped him. Within 30 minutes, Frank's replied. Within 30 minutes, bang, done. Mark Noble, uh, the next day, to be fair to him, and Rio, two weeks later, I still ain't heard. So, <laughs> so I sent him another WhatsApp, a little, re- sorry to keep bothering you, Rio, a little reminder. And then within 20 minutes, boom, you know, his, yeah. his little quote. But, um, but Frank, straight away, you know, genuine guy, you know, ordinary guy, grounded. And I watched the game last night, Everton, Aston Villa, and... Um, Burnley. But, uh, Claret and Blue. Yeah, I know. The Burnley-Everton game. Yeah. And um, at 2 1, I thought we were going to win this. And then they, uh, the de- defending was awful. And uh, I felt really sorry for him after the game. Really sorry for him. You know, I could see, I could see the emotion in him, you know, pent up anger in him. So, yeah, he's having a tough time. Certainly but, you know, is. his character, he'll shine through, he'll come through. I don't know what will happen with Everton, but he'll come through. So going back to the testimonial itself yeah. on the day, yeah, that, I mean, it was quite a dramatic... I mean, I very rarely ever go to friendlies or testimonials because it, it, yeah. not, it's yeah. not the same, is it? Yeah. I and mean, there's not that competitive yeah, spirit affair, there. Really, isn't it? Yeah. But um, I did come to, to that because, first of all, I thought it was important because... I mean, okay, we've never met before, but I just knew of your contribution to West Ham. And frankly, I wanted to see Paolo Di Canio again, yeah. who's my all-time favourite player. Um, and it was it was quite... His his performance in that match was quite something, yeah. wasn't it? Oh, he's ever the showman. I mean, I yeah. think I told the story in the book, you know, the, he said, oh, I'll play half a game. Again, I can't do the acting. I'll play half a game. I said, Paolo, just go over 10 minutes. As long as you get out there, fans come to see you. Okay, okay, okay. So we comes off at half time, and uh, so in Palo, you, 
off you come then, Palo and Gary Alexander, you can come on now, you know, the Millwall player. Yeah. He was, had a terrific career, Gary Alexander, by the way. And um, he went, no, 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 no. I want 10 more minutes. I said, I thought you were saying you'd come off. I went, no, no. He said, I want 10 more minutes. He said, I want the adulation of the crowd when I come off. <laughs> so 10 minutes goes by. Come on, Palo. And then the crowd, obviously, Palo, do you can? You know, and, uh, you know, he's the ever, forever shit. And he come off the pitch. I've got a nice picture at home. He's giving me a hug on the touchline. And he's whispering me here, thank you for this wonderful experience. And I thought, well, you know, t- very, he, very emotional. He, he played the game emotionally, he paid, didn't he? paid all his own costs as well. Paid all his own expenses, living in Rome at the time. Yeah. His own flight and his own hotel paid it all. Didn't want to take a bean. Yeah. And then he came on again. And then he... Oh, I, I didn't even know that was happening. Him and, him and Franco came on. You know, they must have been in the tunnel and he said, come on, we'll go on. And they've come up with you know, the West Ham 11. Because it, it was a shame in a way that it wasn't the week after this season finished, wasn't it? Because some yeah. of the players, the clubs wouldn't let them play. No. Well, it was the three Chelsea players because yeah. they they had to... had one more game, but to win the title, they had to beat Wigan at yeah. home. Which, you know... And they won 9-0. <laughs> But Ancelotti at the time wouldn't let them play. So you can go, but he wouldn't let them play. Glenn Johnson, they wouldn't let Glenn Johnson play because um, Benitez had a a club do that evening and he wouldn't excuse him from it. Um, and obviously Michael Carrick's wife, Lisa, was just about to have a child and he didn't want to leave Manchester for the, you know, for the evening, mm. which was um, fair enough. And Jermaine Defoe couldn't play because Man City... Tottenham were playing Man City on that same night to sort of finish, yeah. get a game in to finish the season off. So, yeah, there was two or three that couldn't play. But in the end, I had so many players, I was trying to fit them all on. And, and there was a group of players that you know, obviously didn't get changed, like the, Alvin well, Martins, it, Paul Allens, Bobby Barnes. And it was a great day. People like that. Ian Dale's Book Club. Let's talk about your departure, because... Clearly, it caused you a lot of pain at the time, the way it was handled. Yes, I was I was quite hurt initially with the way it was handled. I was hurt initially that they wanted to replace me anyway, but Karen sold me the fact that um, they wanted to keep me on as like an ambassador. And I thought, well, OK. And to be fair, I did have 15-odd months left on my contract, so it was either take your money and go or stay on in another capacity and work your contract. And she said, at the end of that, we'll give you another contract, which will stay ambassador. So I said, OK, they're, they're thinking long term. Nothing lasts forever, so let's. I'll, I'll go then and I'll support the new guy. I'll try and help him. I'll try and support him. And genuinely felt that. So, But then when they HR called me in and said, well, we don't think the ambassadorial role is working, and there's one or two people who don't think it's working... Um, and they offered me, I think it was token, basically, they, they offered me so many hours per year or something. And it, it equated to about one day a week. And I thought, you don't really want me to stay here. And Or a redundancy package. I said, well, tell me what the redundancy package is and I'll take that, basically. So they made me redundant and, and I left. But because the Daily Mail rang me and said to me, we've heard you've been sacked. And um, I said, well, no, technically I haven't, I haven't been sacked um, but you know, I think I've been manoeuvred into a corner where I, did, I had very, very little wriggle room, mm. and uh, took the redundancy package. And um, I said I was dis- just disappointed with, with the way they handled it. 
that was what I was more disappointed with than anything else. It wasn't about how much money I got from a, you know, a, a, a redundancy package. It wasn't nothing to do with that at all. Uh, it was just to do with. I just thought it could have done a bit. You know, we've, after yeah. forty-three years service, yeah. you know, and after reasonably successful service, it could have been done a handled a different way. And what's your relationship like with the club now? Well, I, I, I bumped into Karen once when they unveiled the Bobby Moore plaque on his house in Barking. I went to that, and she said hello and was quite polite. And I bumped, they invited me to Chadwell Heath when they refurbed all the facilities at Chadwell Heath for the academy, and they invited me to the opening of that. And, and I spoke to David Sullivan very briefly when he said to me, I bet you wish you had these facilities when you were here. And I said, yeah, it would have been nice. I said, but it's still about what goes out, on, what, you know, what happens out on the grass. That, that's the real thing that, that matters. And he, he didn't reply. But that was that's about it, really. So I don't speak to them. I have no need to. But, um, no, I mean, I've got no I've got no axe to grind. I've got no... But didn't they take away your season tickets as well? Yes, they did. Um, when I say they took them away, I, I had them for that season because I was uh, dismissed in this September. So I had season tickets for that season. At the end of that season, they didn't offer them to me. They didn't, they didn't offer them to me as complimentary or they didn't offer them to me as, you know, you can buy them. And uh, I was still a little bit angry, and I, let, I just let it slide and didn't make a fuss about it and let it slide. Do you still go? I still go. Uh, my brother-in-law is a season to get older, and I sit behind the goal with him because he has four tickets, him, his two children, and his wife, and his wife rarely goes. So he's always got a spare ticket. So he says to me, do you fancy it this week? I was at the Everton game on Sunday. I'm not going tonight, though, the Leon game, but... Uh, I'll be watching it on the TV and wishing them, you know, hope they get through. Yeah, of course, I'm on the radio, which yeah. is, um, I shouldn't really multitask, but... Um, yeah, you'll have one eye on that, I'm oh, sure. Well, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing achievement, actually. Yes, yeah, so they've done that... fantastic. Well, I think mean, all credit to David Moyes. And I've said it before, all credit to, um, to David Sullivan, in effect, for being brave enough to bring him back. You know, yeah. he'd sacked him, bought him Pellegrini, which didn't work. And I have to say with Pellegrini, I, I don't doubt his credentials and what he's achieved and what he's, what he's done. But I just didn't think he was the right fit for us at that time. Uh, and I think that's how it proved. And David Sullivan was brave enough to give David Moyes a call and say, come back, have another go. Which um, I think most of us thought was not a good idea, but we've all had to eat humble pie because yeah, he's I, done an absolutely yeah, fantastic because, job. Because uh, obviously his time there initially was... He knew he knew what was our, our, what the club was. Yeah. You know, he knew the hierarchy, knew how the club were, knew most of the players. And uh, his biggest problem was trying to filter the players that didn't work, that Pellegrini had brought in, and you know, for big big money, and uh, they didn't work. So he's turning it around, and um, I hope we you know we can continue this success for another couple of months. Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? To yes. Hope. Well, Tony, it's been absolutely yeah. brilliant talking to you. I know I said we we're only going to do half an hour. We've now done, I think, an hour and an hour and twenty minutes. So. Oh right, okay. <laughs> I'm sure we'll edit, you'll edit it down. No, we won't. No, absolutely not. Well, I've enjoyed it. I hope you have too. Yes, I have. You know, still, still a hammer through and through. Well, no regrets. Thank goodness for that. Well, listen, uh, Tony's book is called uh, "Life: A Lifetime in Football" at West Ham United by Tony. 
Jamie Carl, published by Icon Books in hardback at £20. Uh, every West Ham fan should buy it. It goes without saying. But I think it's the sort of book where even if you're not a West Ham fan, you get a lot out of it because you learn a lot about coaching methods, about what it's like to deal with younger footballers. And there aren't many books out on the market that tell you all about that. So do go out and buy it. There you go. An hour and a half for Tony Carr. We will be back on Monday, hopefully, after the Chelsea game. Uh, Hopefully we'll all be back. Until then, goodbye. Bobby Moore. More than just a podcast. Bobby Moore. More than just a podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 